Well, as you have uh, found your place in John chapter 5, I'm going to grind an axe a little bit this morning uh, as we get started. You know, our postmodern pluralistic society, I think, is making people soft. I think it is turning us into a bunch of soft people who don't value much anymore the values and the virtues of leadership, strong leadership, of strength, and of fortitude. I think this idea, that this thing that's permeating our culture as we live in America today has really given people a, a growing sense of entitledness and a tremendous self-centered nature in our culture. And I could give you a ton of examples on this, but time won't let me get through all of those. So let me just give you a couple of things. One, you all recognize, I hope you understand that not everyone can be right in every situation. You understand that, don't you? Because actually what's taking place in our culture is they don't want you to think that any longer. We're being taught the exact opposite of that. We're being told that every idea, every thought, every opinion, even every, every religion, that they're all equal. None, no, no opinion, no idea, no thought is right. Therefore, none is wrong. One's not better than another. Um, none are good or bad. And we're taught this virtue of, of tolerance as well. We, we tolerate everything. We tolerate everyone unless it's Christianity. And then there's a whole different standard for that kind of stuff. But you know how that goes, that, that two-edged sword that's there. But, but people tell us, well, everything's equal. Everything's valid. No right or wrong. You know, it's kind of up to you to discern those things. And, you know, that may apply to whether or not you think Coke or Pepsi is a better soft drink. And you can have your own opinion on, on which school you think is better, Virginia Tech or, or UVA. You know, there, there's a lot of debate and conversation about that. That's fine. But let me tell you, this philosophy is not going to fly in areas of morality and religion or life in general. And I want to tell you, nobody who, who, who prescribes and ascribes to that really believes and holds dear to that philosophy Universally, It just does not work. People will tell you, well, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. You know, we're fine. We can get along. We can be together. That's nonsense. And you can prove it to that person by this. The next time somebody tells you what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, snag their smartphone and stick it in your pocket. Or if you're at their house, walk up to their entertainment center and begin unplugging their DVD player and stick it in your jacket and make your way to the car. Do you know what they're going to say to you? Well, you can't do that. That's my stuff. And you know what you say to them? What's right for me is right for me. I have no qualms about taking your stuff. I like your stuff. And they're going to say, well, that's stealing. You can't do that. And you say, says who? What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. I see no problems with it. And they go, well, wait a second. That, that, that's not what I mean. Well, then tell me what you mean here. You don't mean then what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. You see how this doesn't work when you get to, to real life, but we're told that it works, and it's the philosophy that, that we need to live by. You know, another area where there is a standard of right and wrong and a good and bad and a better and best, in my years of ministry and seeking to hire a number of different staff positions, I've looked over a lot of resumes. And I'll tell you, I have been stunned at time to see the spelling and the grammatical errors in resumes. And I'm going to tell you something. As I look at these things, it makes a difference. 
text language does not cut it for a cover letter of your resume. I'm just telling you. It's not going to help you get to the second round in that interview. And before you start saying, well, well, not everybody's a good speller. I understand that. Totally affirm that not everybody's a good speller. But you know what the second thing says? Could you not run the spell check on your document? I mean, I sit sometimes and go, are you kidding me? Because it's not that it's a wrong tense of the word there. Okay, granted, you know, there's a little confusion in spelling T-H-E-R-E, T-H-E-I-R, T-H-Y, apostrophe R-E. I, I, I get that. But you have butchered a word that is totally, you know, misspelled. And it highlights on my computer that it's misspelled. How did you miss that? You know, find somebody that is a good speller. Have them look these things over. There are standards. There are right and wrong things. And we understand these things and how they impact us and influence our lives. And our culture is telling us, well, everything's valid. Everything is equal. But, but as I give these examples and we think through some of these things, what we begin to realize is there has to be, there must be an objective Standard, someone or something outside of ourselves by which we measure things. Spelling, we, we go to the textbook, we, we go to our language to understand those things. What is our standard of morality? If obviously you don't want someone just walking into your house and then walking out with your stuff, you say, well, that's wrong. Wrong says who? There has to be a standard. And we say, well, we have laws in, in our books. Well, where did those laws come from? Where did the laws that we have written down originate from? And we come back to and we say, there must be someone, something that's higher, that's above us, that's outside the scope of opinion and emotion that determines right or wrong. And that standard is there. That standard is God. It's, it's not my opinion. It's what God has established and what God tells us in his word. And in John chapter 5, Jesus shows us that we must make decisions about what is right and wrong, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. We must make a choice related to who Jesus Christ is is. And I'm going to tell you, by not making a choice, you are indeed making a choice, a choice to reject Jesus and his claims. Last week in John 5, I set up for you that Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years on the Sabbath. And I shared with you at the end of this encounter that the religious leaders come to Jesus and they get very antagonistic toward him because in their minds and according to their man-made laws, Jesus had violated their law of working on the Sabbath by healing this man. And so they begin to persecute Jesus because of all this. And in verse 17, I want you to see that Jesus does absolutely nothing to meet these people in the middle, to compromise with them, or to stroke their egos any at all. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Verse 17, Jesus says to them, my father is working until now and I am working you know, John doesn't record it, but I bet there was, there was probably an audible gasp and some murmuring that began to take place in the crowd of people who had gathered and who were watching these religious leaders and Jesus begin to debate and interact with one another. And I think that gasp and that murmuring went on because when Jesus said these words, he made a claim. He said something, and they clearly understood what he was saying. 
says, verse 18 tells us what they knew Jesus was saying when he said those words in verse 17. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself, John says, equal with God. As Jesus spoke to these religious leaders, he wasn't politically correct. He didn't beat around the bush. He wasn't trying to drop a subtle hint so that they could read between the lines and try and figure out what he was saying. He meant to say something very clearly, very pointed. And these men heard and they understood what it was that Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I am equal to God. And here's how he was making that claim. The Jews had a very high view of God. He was honored. Uh, he was to be adored. There, there was great admiration and respect and a, and a, a healthy fear, a, a godly type fear of God and who he was uh, as, a, as a being. But he was unique. He was set apart. He was altogether different from us at human be- as human beings. They had such a high respect for God, and this will be important a little bit later, that as scribes were writing scripture, one one individual would stand in a room, and there would be men there, and he would read word for word the, the, the words of scripture, and these scribes would copy down, making very sure they got every word, every spelling correct as they went through. When these scribes would come to writing the name of God, they would stop, and they would wash their hands. Because they had such a a sacred respect and holy admiration for God that they didn't want to write God's name with unclean hands. And once they started writing God's name, they would not stop until they completed that name. Because they, they were symbolizing that nothing is more important than finishing and completing the name of God as it's written. If a king addressed them as they were writing God's name, they would ignore that king at the risk of losing their own life to finish writing God's name. And most of you know that devout Jews wouldn't even dare, they wouldn't think about speaking God's name. They had a whole different name that they used to refer to God because the Bible tells us to not take the Lord's name in vain. They were so afraid, not of taking it in vain, but mispronouncing it, saying it wrong, that they would use a whole separate name so as not to run the risk of taking the Lord's name in vain. So God is here and humans, people are here altogether different. So here's Jesus, a human A man that they see who eats and drinks and and, and walks and he has, you know, dirty feet and he has hair and and he's just a human being that they can see and observe that everything about him is a complete human being. And then this man says, my father is working and I too am working was scandalous because Jesus was saying to them, I'm human, but I'm equal to or I am like God because he is my father. And I want to tell you something. Either Jesus was right or wrong when he made this claim. Our world says, well, every opinion, every idea, you know, they're all equal, whatever. No, Jesus is either right or wrong in making this claim. There's no alternate explanation, no, no gray area of this, any middle ground. Either he was God's son or he wasn't God's son. And the question that Jesus sets before the religious leaders and that is still before us today is, are we going to believe that Jesus is God's son? And if we believe that, 
How are we going to respond to that belief and to the teachings and to the claims and to the commands and demands that Jesus makes upon us? Everything in life, everything in your life, everything about your eternity hinges upon you answering that question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And if you believe that, how, is, how are you going to respond to his teachings, his claims, his demands upon your life? And so Jesus moves into kind of defending himself. I told you before that John has sort of a a courtroom uh, feel to his gospel sometimes. This is one of those examples. Jesus now defends his case as in a court of law. So let's look as he defends his claim to be God's son uh, at some of the reasons he says he is indeed the son of God. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Likewise, I'm sorry. It says here, here, verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So Jesus says, reason number one is that the father loves the son and shows him what he's doing. And we could say, well, well, doesn't God love all people? Yes, God does love all people. But do we always know what God is doing? Do we always understand and do we always respond in perfect and obedience and at the perfect time to accomplish God's good, pleasing, and perfect will? No, we don't. But Jesus did understand. He did know uh, God's plan and purposes at all times because God revealed it to him because he was equal to God. And so Jesus was always in the right place at the right time to do exactly what his father had called him to do. So Jesus says that's his first defense is that the father loves the son and shows him what he's doing. But he goes on and he tacks on here at the end. He says, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. I love that statement. I mean, Jesus has already turned water into wine. He healed the official son from over 25 miles away. Uh, He's done the signs and wonders that we see back in Jerusalem. He's now healed a 38-year invalid. I mean, Jesus has done some pretty impressive stuff at this point. And he says, I'm going to do even greater signs so that you may see and marvel. He says, I'm going to prove to you in even greater fashion that I am God's son. So the question for us as you read this in John's gospel chapter 5 and as you read on is to say, will he back it up? He says he's going to do greater things than he's already done. That's already a pretty impressive resume. Will he do even greater things than that? To be continued. All right, so stay stay with me on that one. Look at the second reason, though, that Jesus gives for us to believe in him. He says in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. You see, life is a decision of God the Father who created Adam and then who has created and given life to every person who's followed after Adam. And so Jesus says that here he too gives life to whomever he chooses. And so this means that uh, those who believe and those who trust in him, Jesus gives spiritual life. But giving life is another trait and characteristic ascribed to God that now Jesus claims for himself. God gives life. I give life. But Jesus' life is a reference to spiritual life. He tells us in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
So one reason to believe that Jesus uh, is God's son is because he has the ability to give life just as God the Father does. So again, either Jesus can do this or he can't do this. Does he have the power uh, of spiritual life over death? Well, Jesus will show us later that just like his father, not only does he have the ability to give spiritual life over death, but he also has the ability to give physical life over death. His own... But also, as in John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus demonstrates, yep, I, I control physical life and I control spiritual life. Therefore, I am God's son. He, he's making these claims and it's either yes or no in, in the question of whether or not he's able to fulfill these things. The next reason that Jesus says we should believe in him is because he has been given the authority to judge. Look back at verse 22. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. What do we call judges today? We refer to them in the courtroom as your honor. We think of honor for a judge. And again, this is a reference here to Jesus being a judge in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 28 as he uh, expounds on this a little bit more. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so Jesus speaks here of being a judge and having the authority to judge given to him by the Father. Well, let me ask you something. Have any of you all ever known a judge personally? I, I've known two judges in my life. And you know what I find, found myself doing as I was around these individuals? I always behaved really, really well around these judges. You know, if you've known a judge, did you find yourself that way? Very respectful and very, you know, mind my P's and Q's very, very well. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a pastor by day and a mob boss at night, you know, trying to, you know, there, there's really no reason I should have felt, you know, tension or anxiety or, or you know, wanting to, to have a good impression with this judge. But there's this level of respect and honor to this person that should we ever find ourselves before a judge, we want him to be just, we want him to be fair, and we want him to think well of us, right? I mean, that's what we think of. With judges, those are the things that we want. Just fair and have a good impression of me, all right? Uh, just in case when that time comes. Well, Jesus tells us that he is our judge. Not just in ruling in matters of law, particularly of earthly law. The, the, the law in the realm that Jesus really ha has the, the primary jurisdiction over we need to be concerned with is in the area of spiritual law. Have we kept, have we obeyed God's word and, and, and God's commands? And you know the answer to that? No. We haven't. So we would have reason to be a little tense, a little anxious to say, oh, I'm going to stand before the judge one day and I haven't done well. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. When he asked me if I honored my, father, my, my, my mother and my father, I say, no, I, I didn't. If he asked me, did, did, you, did you ever lie? Yes, I've lied. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked at a woman lustily? When he goes through the list, we say, yeah, guilty, guilty, guilty. And we say, that causes tension within us. But remember, we want a judge that's just and fair. And Jesus is just and fair. Not only is he just and fair in, in what punishment or sentence may come our way, but because of his love for us, which is his love that his father has for us, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. I mean, it's like a judge saying, you know what? You're guilty of this crime that you're being brought into my courtroom for today. I'm going to sentence you to, to five years. 
You got a five-year sentence. But then he bangs the gavel and says, you know what? The last five years, I sat in that jail cell on your behalf. You're free to go. We go, whoa. He didn't let you off scot-free. He paid your penalty in advance. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you. He paid the price for your sins. He died on the cross because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. He died for you. So that if you believe in him and believe that his death was for you and ask him into your life, he will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you of those sins. And the Bible says that we are covered with his righteousness so that as we stand before him as judge, he looks at us and he no longer sees our sin and our disobedience and our, our waywardness to God, but he sees his perfect righteousness because he was perfect. So Jesus makes a great case for, for believing for for these religious leaders to believe that he was God's son, that the father loves him, that he's been given the authority to judge. But just as in this courtroom motif, Jesus lists his witnesses. He says, hey, don't just take my word for it. Look in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. You understand this in a court of law. We, we recognize how this works. They call witnesses and people to speak into the situation. What did you see? You know, an individual testimony. And the Bible tells us that an accusation wasn't to be entertained unless it had the backing of two to three witnesses. So Jesus says, hey, if I say all these things about myself, you don't have to believe anything at all. He says, but I have witnesses. Let's talk about the witnesses that I have. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Well, who is this witness? It is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the first witness that Jesus calls in his defense. He says in verse 33, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. What's the testimony of John? The testimony of John was, that Jesus was God's son because God told him the one whom the, the Holy Spirit descends and lands upon. He is God's son. He goes on and says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus' desire for these religious leaders who are antagonistic, who are persecuting him, who want to do him harm and ultimately kill him, he wants them to be saved. He wants them to believe He's walking through this so that they would understand and come to a saving knowledge and place their faith in him. He says in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, what he means by they were willing to rejoice for a while, they went to see John, they went to hear him, but when John refused to follow their systems and their standards and behave like they thought he should behave and teach like they thought he should teach and, and, and do the things they thought he should do, they rejected John as well. They said, no, nah, this guy isn't falling in line with our systems, our traditions, our rituals, therefore we reject him. He doesn't do it like us, so what he says can't be true. Well, Jesus goes on and he tells us that his works also testify that he is God's son because these works are done in God's power. Verse 35, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. 
And again, we don't get all the picture and the flavor of, of what's taking place, but wouldn't it have been awesome? It's like, man, if this happened, oh, it would have just been so wonderful. Because remember the man who had been an invalid for 38 years went back and told the religious leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him and did it on the Sabbath. If that man came with them as they came to persecute Jesus, as Jesus is speaking, how awesome would it have been as when he walked over and he says, the, the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing. What if that guy was there and Jesus draped his arm over his shoulders at the very works that I am doing. Remember this guy who was an invalid for 38 years who's now walking the very works that I'm doing. It's not in there, but boy, my, my, my uh, sanctified imagination sees that as awesome driving home the point of, yeah, these works by God's power should tell you that I am who I say I am. But Jesus goes on and he says that God himself also witnesses to his identity. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he sent. That hurt. Do you know how painful that was for those religious leaders? These guys come at Jesus, teeth bared. I mean, just, you know, they, they are so wanting to tear into him. They want to kill this man. They're religious leaders, trained, educated, deeply devout in their faiths and their beliefs. And Jesus says to them, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Ow, that hurts. That was an insult. As much of an insult as you could say to them is to say, all that you've done, all that you believe, you know nothing. You know nothing. It's pretty antagonistic. Jesus isn't saying, oh yeah, your thoughts, your ideas, oh, they're good. It's, we'll all be happy and you, you believe what you believe. No, he's not. He's saying, come to me, believe me. Because if you don't, there are going to be consequences, separation from me for eternity that you are going to experience. So Jesus calls God as his witness. But then here's what he does. Jesus says, okay, you're here. You're the religious leaders. You have a system. You have a way that you think you're working yourself to God. Well, let's talk about your witnesses. And Jesus goes through and kind of he's saying to us or to the crowd, you can choose to believe that I'm God's son and, and come to me, or you can believe in anything else, any other religion, any other system, any other way of working your way into God. You can believe any number of things. And Jesus points out what these religious leaders claimed as their heritage. These are, the, these are their witnesses that testify that they are right and that the way that they are seeking after God is proper. And the first thing that they call and they say is their witness, Jesus says, is the scriptures. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. I told you earlier how meticulous they were in writing scripture and washing their hands. They had a high reverence for scripture. We we should have an incredible reference for scripture, for God's word that he has given to us. We should treasure and honor and respect and, and love God's word and want to read and study and know it. We, we need to have that same uh, honor for the word of God. But their belief was if we know enough and we're smart enough and we obey it 
and we don't violate what's in here, we're going to be okay. Basically, it was a works-based system. If we can do what is in here, we're going to be fine. And they believe that, and they back that up from the Scriptures. And Jesus says, you call Scriptures as your witness. But if you just wrote that underneath the religious leader's witnesses, I want you to take your pen or pencil, I want you to mark through it. I want you to strike it out. I listed it there just because it's that that flow in the text. But look at how Jesus ends this sentence. And it is they that bear witness about me. I love this. It's awesome. The religious leaders say, we believe in the scriptures and God's word. and We follow God's word. It's our witness. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's actually my witness. These scriptures bear testimony about me. Imagine being on the west coast of the United States, standing in a, in a, in a you know, hotel looking as the sun sets over a, a, a beautiful sunset out over the ocean, and you're sitting, you're just taking in the beauty of the sun setting over the ocean and God's creation and the, the glamour of that and just how glorious it is. And somebody walks up and says, man, that is an awesome window. Look at this glass. Kunk, 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 kunk. Look how smooth that caulking is. There are no bubbles in here in this wood. And you're looking at this person, you're going... Dude, are you for real? There's a sunset out here, a glorious sunset, and you're looking at the window? His scriptures are a window to Jesus Christ. He is the glory to behold. He is is the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. He is where we're to fix our gaze and our affections on him, not the window that helps us see him. This morning, I hadn't thought about this, and so, uh, Melly, this isn't in my manuscript, sorry. Um, several years ago, Shelly's brother gave us a picture, and we've had this picture, and it's just kind of sat around. It's a wonderful picture, and this morning, it dawned on me, ah, oh, it's the picture of what Jesus is talking about, the scriptures testifying to him. I'm going to take this, and I'm going to show it to you. This is a picture of Jesus. You can probably see that. I'll try not to blind anybody with the reflection of light coming here. It's a picture of Jesus. And you go, okay, cool. It's a picture of Jesus. No, it is cool. Because this isn't just a picture of Jesus. This is the gospel of John. The text, the words, the letters of the gospel of John typed up on this page. I'm going to leave it down here. I want you to come by after service. And you can see these are the words of John's gospel. From John 1.1 all the way to the end of John chapter 21. And the way they're presented, the way they're typed up and and emboldened and highlighted, it's a picture of Jesus. So when Jesus says the scriptures are witnesses to me, I want you to understand this is what it is. When you read God's word, it's a picture of Jesus for you to see, for you to understand, for you to obey and apply in your lives. So Jesus says, yeah, you think you have the scriptures as a witness, but no, they, they testify, they bear witness to me. But he goes on and says, oh, you do have witnesses in your camp. He says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Huh? That hurts. I mean, I, that would be a hard thing for people to say to me as a pastor. You don't have the love of God within you, Curtis. Oh, I need to maybe re- rethink who I am and what I'm doing, how I'm behaving, if somebody would, would lobby that accusation. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So Jesus says, you have false prophets who have come in their name claiming to be the Messiah. History records that no less than 63 men came saying, I am the Messiah, I'm the one sent from God. And 63 men got got a following of people around them to say, that's right, we believe that this guy is the Messiah. And you know what? They were all wrong. Every single one of them were wrong. They couldn't back up the fact that they claimed to be the Messiah, God's son. But here Jesus shows up and he has the power. He's doing the signs and wonders. He's showing and demonstrating that he is God's son. And what do the religious leaders do? They reject him. They say, we don't want to follow you. We don't want to listen to you. I mean, are you understanding? I hope you are grasping just the picture of irrationality that's taking place here to see these things, to hear these things. And they say, no, not going to do it. Not going to believe, not going to follow, not going to change what I do. That is a hard heart, hardened by, the pe- hardened by the people and the things of this world. But in verse 45, Jesus calls a final witness that they have in their camp. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. They said, we're children of Moses. And we'll we'll look at this here in a few weeks when they claim to be children of Moses. And and Jesus, in not so many nice, kind, politically correct words, says, no, you're not children of Moses either. It's like you're not a child of God. Uh, You're not a child of Moses either. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So if you just wrote Moses under the religious leaders list of witnesses, mark it out. Because yet another of their witnesses, Jesus says, no, 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 no. He doesn't witness and testify for you. He testifies for me. And so Jesus says that Moses wrote of him. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? And so there you have it, a very clear-cut presentation of why we should believe in Jesus as the Son of God and his call and invitation to say, will you receive the gift of eternal life that I offer? Remembering what we talked about last week uh, based on the the invalid's uh, life that we can't save ourselves. We can't work our way through scriptures. We can't follow Moses' law. We're not good enough to earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. We are dependent upon Christ who died in our place and paid the price for our sins. Have you made that profession of, of saving faith in your life. Believe that Jesus died for you and invited him into your life to take control of your life, to be your Savior and your Lord. If you've never done that, then today I want you to understand who Jesus is and the very clear call that he makes for you. And I want you to understand the importance and the urgency of making that decision today. Because church, we are not guaranteed tomorrow. If you could show me a card signed by God or Jesus himself that says you are guaranteed to see life tomorrow, then I'll let you pass and say you can, you can think about whether or not you want to make your decision to trust Christ tomorrow. But you don't have that card. You don't. That's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. 
But, you know, I know there are others of you here this morning, and and you may be struggling with with which voice you're going to listen to in in decisions that you're facing, the situations that you find yourself in. The world's saying one thing. Maybe your own heart and your emotions feel another. You know God's word says another, and and you're not sure what's right or wrong. You're not sure where to go. Is one thing better or worse than another? Go with Jesus. Go with God's word. Whatever the other voices say are irrelevant. Go with what God teaches in his word. And and if God's word isn't speaking clearly to that, find godly people, people who are in God's word, who know God's word, who can pray for you and ask that God would guide you and direct you in that. Because not every opinion is equal. Not every thought or idea is valid. Some things are right and some things are wrong. Some things will bring you closer to God. Some things will pull you further away from him. Jesus' words this morning remind us that sometimes we must make a decision. We've got to get off the fence and make a decision about and for him. And as I said earlier, to not make a decision for Christ is to make a decision against Christ. Because he said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me, he says, scatters. What will be your choice, your decision today? I challenge you and call you and plead with you to follow Christ, his will, his plan for your life. And in every situation that you may be facing, even if you're the only one who does so, follow Christ, be obedient to him. Today, you must choose. Which choice will you make?